0: My name is Tim Hassett. My leadership lesson today is the power of strategic choices which is a bit of a lost art. Everything you do in business begins and ends with those critical elements and I think they are grounded in the power of a couple of critical choices.
1: Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today, and I'm Alish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Tim Hassett, the Chief Exec of Unlimited Group, who was highly commended in MT's Business Leadership Awards for Chief Exec of the Year.
2: Alish, do you want to give us some insight into the interview? Tim Hassett is the CEO of Conversion Agency Unlimited, who consolidated the business from 23 agencies down to nine while only losing a fraction of his staff. He takes us on the highs and lows of the restructuring journey, including changing the hearts and minds of his change-averse colleagues and his experience moving from the client side to agency side.
1: So the first topic this week is whether a right to disconnect should be enshrined in law. This refers to the ability to switch off work emails and calls outside of working hours. This is already a law in France, and there was a discussion recently about whether it should also be a law in the UK, and the Labour Party has said that it will bring it into law if they win the next general election. Ada, you cover this story? Do you want to dive into the details?
2: Yes, so we posed this idea to our readers via a poll on our website, and 70% of them believe that a right to disconnect would be a positive move for business but of course we then pushed this question out to the wider management today community and received some different reactions from people and i think the consensus was while many of them agree that the idea is a positive step they're unsure of whether it should be enshrined in law or whether specific legislation should be brought in So Tony Harper, who's the CEO and founder of Harper James, he believes that the need for this legislation is what he says is a symptom of a broken culture rather than a solution. He thinks that if this was brought in as a law, it might force employees to think about making changes. But what needs to happen is that it needs to be something that extends to the culture and the values of a workplace. There's a quote here. He says businesses need less regulation, and employees should exercise their right to move on if they are unhappy with their current work culture. Which I think sounds a little bit like victim blaming.
1: (laughs) Um, I agree. I'm I'm not sure that I I agree because you want people to be able to fix a culture from the inside. And the sort of suggestion that if you can't, you know, keep up with it, then you need to leave is you're going to lose a lot of people that way, and you're not going to be able to hire the right staff to come in and. I think that's sort of slightly lazy to think mm. that you're not responsible for setting a a productive culture that supports the people that are working for you. So yeah, that, that feels a bit lazy thinking mm. to me.
2: Yes, I, I think so too. And I think a couple of the other comments that we've had also address the idea that it should be something that's embedded within a company rather than be a kind of blanket legislation. Dan Lawrence, who's the founding director of Unite and Create said that if this legislation were to pass, it would go against the flexible working approach that a lot of businesses and employees are currently benefiting from. And if businesses were to readdress work and life balance, they should focus on training and processes that establish boundaries to positively impact employees and businesses alike. And There've been a couple of sort of what if questions that have come about as well, posing various different circumstances where this legislation might not work as well. So Hayden Bratt, who's a mindset and performance coach, he has a lot of concerns around organisations that work across different time zones and jurisdictions. You know, you've got one law in one country, you don't have that law in another country. How would that work? He also has concerns around how it will be policed or enforced in the workplace, and what the potential ramifications might be for those who do contact colleagues or employees outside of hours. What will happen to them? So the consensus seems to be that while, on the whole, this is not necessarily wholly a negative idea, it just. There are concerns about whether it should be made into a blanket law. This should be something that is perhaps done on a business-by-business basis and businesses should incorporate it into their company culture. But I think if it were to be a sort of business-by-business case, there does need to be some regulation there and perhaps some sort of outside force or a governing body that can... Make sure that that's not being abused, yeah I think it's an interesting topic because I think the principle of it is broadly
1: right that you don't want employees to be constantly feeling they have to work all the time, and you don't want to have people that are misusing that power and you know demanding people are working all hours and checking emails all the time. However, there obviously are some jobs where that kind of work is necessary sometimes. The pushback about the flexible working approach I think is interesting, particularly as people have different working hours and maybe sending emails at different times and stuff. But I also think that's sort of written into people's contracts. So so one person might be working late at night, but they send an email to a colleague that's not, well, that's fine because that colleague that isn't working late at night Mm. will respond in the morning and that's fine. So it's more about what that Mm. person who's receiving the email does with that email Mm. rather than you can't possibly send somebody an email outside of work. Mm. So I I don't think that argument quite holds up. Mm. And I do think It's a kind of cultural thing, because again, I mean, there's there's, there are a few laws, and it's a kind of a neatly one line in a kind of employment contract saying, you know, we expect you to kind of do extra work as and when is required, Mm. or we'll expect you to answer your phone when Mm. it's you know necessary. So, yeah, I think it may be more of a broader cultural piece that needs to change so making sure that working out of your hours doesn't become an expected thing all the time and that there's thought that goes into looking after your employees and making sure they they do f- mm. have proper breaks which all the research shows makes them more productive mm. and so uh, you know any business leader should be um wanting their staff to be more and more productive and, and breaks have been shown repeatedly to be a way of doing that so but it's a definitely an interesting one To see whether that actually comes Mm. into fruition or not. And now our other top story this week is How Not to Be a Cringy Chief Exec on LinkedIn, which was written by Andrew Saunders. It's an interesting take on why leaders should be on LinkedIn and how to get it right. And along with the usual self-promoters and humble brags, there is a sort of general sense of snobbery around LinkedIn because of its origins as the go-to place for job seekers. So the more senior types who are lucky enough to have headhunters on speed dial for when they fancy a career move dismiss the platform as a bit middle-brow, but Andy argues that this attitude is both patronising and out of touch. For a start, it's a great way for leaders to connect with customers and employees in a trusted and well-understood environment. Let's not forget it's a platform with huge reach. There are over 35 million accounts in the UK alone, and that's more than one for every member of the working population. And it can help supercharge your brand, as Bill Gates has discovered and obviously has bought into having Microsoft having acquired LinkedIn recently, it's increasingly a valuable source of information and industry insight. If you can know how to find the gold nuggets amid some of the less valuable content, and I, th- I think that becomes increasingly important as people are returning to conferences now, but certainly with the kind of water cooler moments and the opportunities to you know meet peers faded somewhat during the pandemic. And also importantly, prospective employees will check you out on the platform to see whether you sound, you know, human, whether you sound like a decent person or not. So it's definitely something worth engaging with. And the article has some handy tips for CEOs to get it right. He's written a kind of do's and don'ts of LinkedIn, which Ailish and I thought we'd play a little game with. We'll read some of those out to you now. Uh, Do you want to be the do or the don't, Ailish? I'll be the don't. Oh, OK. The negative one. All right. So here we go. The do's and don'ts of LinkedIn. Do think about how what you post and share reflects your professional interests and profile. LinkedIn is not Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. It's your career shop window. So unless you are a professional pet groomer, no one wants to know how your cats are doing.
2: Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Don't treat your LinkedIn page as just an online CV. Your LinkedIn profile should be more personal and conversational. It should tell your career story as well as listing what jobs you've had. Do. Share posts that support others in your
1: network and show how
2: you have worked with them to achieve success. Don't brown nose, or at least not to excess. Be selective and try to add to the conversation rather than just replying with a breathless great to everything your boss posts. Great.
1: Do. Engage in conversations on issues that interest you, where you have
2: specific knowledge or when you can offer some particular insight. Don't brag, or humble brag, about how amazing or successful you are at your job, especially not if you have a leadership role. Smart asses are hard to like and even harder to follow. Do
1: use your LinkedIn network like you use your personal contacts for context, support,
2: and to help make new connections. Don't spam them with trivial or tangential requests and never hit them with an unsolicited sales pitch. Do respond quickly
1: to connect requests, even if it's only to say no, Leaving people waiting for days is bad manners.
2: Don't automatically reject connect requests from people you don't know. Check out their profile. Do they look interesting or potentially useful? Do you have connections in common? There's not much point being on LinkedIn if you aren't open to making new links. The clue's in the name.
1: Do get a decent professional photo for your profile. Save the holiday snaps and family groups for Facebook or Instagram.
2: Don't be the crying CEO, a.k.a. the CEO of Hypersocial, who in August last year fronted an update about layoffs at his Ohio-based firm with an apparently irony-free picture of himself in tears at the horror of it all. He may have been aiming for radical honesty, but what he got instead was an online roasting for his lack of EQ. And there you have it, your
1: top tips for um, LinkedIn success. And finally, in our ongoing series of management mishaps, is the government official in India who dropped his work phone into a reservoir while he was taking a selfie. Instead of just admitting his stupidity and moving on, he used his power to order the reservoir to be drained. It took three days to pump the water out of the dam and by the time the phone was found, it was, unsurprisingly, too damaged to work. He had claimed it contained sensitive government data, but he's been accused of misusing his position and has been suspended. So if you're heading to a body of water this summer, keep this cautionary tale in mind. And now on to our interview with Tim Passett.
2: So you became CEO in 2019. And when you joined the company, one of the big things that you were involved in was a consolidation that the company went from 23 agencies down to nine agencies. Was it something that you were made aware of before you joined or as you were joining that the company needed to be consolidated? Or was this something you discovered once you joined?
0: Well, I knew they were lacking identity and direction. And what I would submit is the discovery process was really in the strategic planning process that I led. So it was a little bit of both.
2: So how did you approach that? Because it's quite a major thing to do to consolidate 23 agencies down to nine.
0: Over the course of my career, I've taken the best of strategic planning processes from a bunch of the companies and a bunch of the leaders that were mentors as I was growing up and have developed what I think is a pretty straightforward, simplistic strategic planning process that I've used in just about every business or every company that I've run. Job one is mapping the market, really looking at the competitive space. Is there a gap in the marketplace? Being really clear-eyed around what people do well versus what they say they do. Second is I like to use Porter's five forces analysis. Once you've mapped the market, you know, is there anything coming around the corner? Are there disruptive models, etc.? Then a really rigorous sort of financial exercise. You'd be surprised how many companies don't have a clear understanding around how they make money. So we really wanted to get underneath that and then finally sort of the ultimate output, which is the strategic planning process. We learned that while we had some great agency brands, candidly, we had some that were more similar than different. And so consolidating allowed us to do a few things, which was really bolster sort of our core capability set and elevate our competency by taking the best and the brightest of what we had internally and aggregating them together. It's quite an emotional journey to go through. But at the same time, as we really started to crystallize our direction, folks started getting pretty energetic about it. And then as part of the output of the strategic plan, we had a very specific delineated communication plan that of course started internally and cascaded down and across the organization if you will and then shortly thereafter we began sort of our external communication process around our new branding our new identity and then of course to our clients because we wanted to make it really clear What was the benefit for our clients? And so we made sure that they were enrolled before we started doing any sort of public communication. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, first order of business, uh, when we started communicating internally, we certainly communicated our identity, our direction, our ambition. I had my leadership team sort of cascade that down within their respective groups and allowed them really to be the first ones to communicate what the change looked like and what the implications of that change were going to be. My HR business partner was at the center of everything, both in terms of sort of co-architecting the communication plan, but also in the case where there was some redundancies, which was few and far between.
2: How did you kind of handle that specifically? I imagine going from 23 down to 9, that's not an insignificant number difference.
0: To say that communication is key is sort of a little cliche, but communication before, during, and after is everything. So we had a series of town halls to bring the entire agency, multiple different locations using video conferencing or me personally visiting each location to bring them through the journey. We didn't want the outcome to be such a tremendous shock. So, what was that strategic plan? What did that look like? Job one was to sort of synthesize that. Our ambition was to be Europe's leading conversion agency driven by insights. And we like to say, as a marketing agency, while we can do brilliant brand strategy and creative and all that kind of stuff, our number one job for our clients is to sell their products and services. So, we don't consider sales a dirty word. So, job one was crystallizing succinctly and articulating that to the organization. Then two, once we had sort of declared and identified what our org structure was going to look like, which was really the next step, then it became evident where we had sort of the leadership required to really mobilize and lead this transformation and where we had some gaps. So after we had developed the org structure, well, first and foremost, our identity and then our ambition next was building the org structure once we built the org structure then it was pretty evident that we needed some additional resources and some of that was functional at the point in time as an example we did not have a chief technology officer so we brought a chief technology officer in secondarily when we had sort of consolidated a number of agencies and a number of capabilities we needed some people who had a breadth of experience across multiple types of capability sets and in some cases we didn't have that so the next step was sort of getting the the right leadership team and the right people on the bus but more importantly the right people in the right seat so while we had a handful of key redundancies you know most of the management team and the leadership team stayed but their roles looked different So, I mean, if you bring it down, it was first step-by-step, it was declare the ambition. The second one was develop the org design. The third one was get the right people on the bus in the right seats. And then we unveiled that to the balance of the organization.
2: You said that the number of redundancies was few and far between. Was that specifically within the leadership team, or was that across the company as a whole?
0: The key changes were at sort of the first and the second level, so my leadership team. And then again, back to sort of the consolidation from so many different legal entities and so many different agencies into a more sort of succinct set. The next layer down, if you will, the leaders of those agencies. My first management meeting I had, there were 27 people in the room. It makes it really difficult to sort of, you know, mobilize (laughs) an organization when you have 27 different voices sort of on the leadership team. So that was sort of the next level where there was some additional consolidation when you lead transformational change. Many of them did not want to be part of it. But if I was to say how many people of the core, let's call it, you know, 30 maybe when I first walked into the room were sort of affected you know, probably immediately, five or six, and maybe over the course of the three years, you know, that number was probably, you know, maybe up to 10. But again, at the same time, we created new roles, bigger roles, and we certainly grew the agency significantly.
2: I wanted to ask you about your move to realign the executive leadership team by using something called the three C's, Mm-hmm. What are these three c's, and how did you, <laughs> you use them to create a new leadership team?
0: I think any leadership team should not only should a business have an identity but leadership teams should have their own identity and I'm a big believer in also bringing the best and the brightest and and candidly the most direct because I think when you have healthy tension and different points of views and really constructive debate, your organization becomes better. I'm really proud of my team because we co-architected these sort of three C's together it starts with character and when you're in running an agency unlike a lot of the other businesses that I've ran where products and manufacturing and route to market models and all that kind of stuff are a part of the business model you're essentially a people agency so as leaders you've got to have uh, leaders who have great character who are good human beings and who engender followership you know that was the first C second And again, sounds straightforward is competency. When we did go through this transformation back to some of the requirements that we had, some of the requirements that we had were different than sort of what our identity in the past had been. So job one was to make sure that we had the right competency set on the leadership team, the breadth of experiences that were required were different. So, you know, it starts with competency, but the third one, which is the C that I value the most. You've got to be a collaborative team. We were going through such a dramatic transformation and organizational change that, you know, I've been part of organizations. If you've got some of the leadership team members who are not fully on board, the organization will see that and your path forward will be much more difficult, much more arduous and a lot longer. And so making sure that we came off as a collaborative, cohesive group. When organizations see that the leadership team is aligned to the mission, to the vision, to the identity, the organization will line up much quicker and and have energy and feel similar excitement that the leadership team does.
2: And what were some of these specific challenges that you faced during this consolidation transformation process? And how did you overcome them?
0: Boy, we We could probably be here for (laughs) three hours answering that one. Let me see if I can give you a few. First, you've got to start with the external marketplace. If you think about sort of this period of change, right, change in and of itself, particularly the one that we took upon ourselves, you know, is hard enough. But we were in a marketplace where, you know, First, we had COVID, right? Then you had massive inflation and then threats of recession. And then, of course, sort of the Ukraine war. Here in the UK, we had three prime ministers in a year. So, you know, one was sort of being agile to be able to adjust to so many of the different sort of external dynamics that were at play, even before we sort of, you know, took on the challenges of the change that we did. Two, it's not always a straight line, and back to, I cannot underplay the value in communication before, during, and after, because while you might think folks are really clear, half of the challenges that we had around, if you will, resistance to change was ultimately and inevitably just a product of there wasn't clarity around the intention behind the change and the external value of that change. So again, I think it just comes to most people are naturally change averse, but when they see the value of it and what it'll create, they come along for the ride. And then um, there were some people that opted out of change and or where there wasn't sort of a role left. And many of those people, you know, through the course of their career had engendered quite a bit of followership. So oftentimes when you make those changes, you run the risk of really some of, you know, key organizational members, you know, following some of the people that left the organization out the door. And uh, we were really cognizant of that. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, if you will, that next level down, if you will, the people that report to my leadership team, there is about 60 of those. So think about you know, think about, you know, 10% of our organization, if you will, is the real management team where everybody in the organization reports to. And over a three-year period, 58 of those 60 managers stayed and bought into the transformation and the opportunity that we could sort of co-create together.
2: How did you encourage some of those people who were perhaps a little bit change-averse or a little bit unsure or hesitant before this consolidation went through, what were some of the things that you did to sort of encourage them to get on board?
0: Yeah, well, we didn't do this strategic planning process in a vacuum. Every member of my leadership team either led one of those work streams or co-led one of those work streams. And it was up to them to actually identify sort of the sub teams that would be part of that process. We enrolled a lot of the people that we knew were going to be critical to the future that we needed. And in many of those cases, we knew would be some of the ones that were going to be most resistant to change. So we simply put them on the team and we allowed their voices to be heard. And uh, I think one of the things that we did well, and my leadership team did particularly well, is not reacting emotionally. I mean, there's a lot of emotion when you go through a change and sometimes it's easy to sort of take that emotion either be defensive or dismiss it and i think myself and my leadership team did a really nice job of sort of welcoming it and inviting it because you know behind that emotion is passion and you know we're incredibly blessed with such a good management team that they just care. And most of the time they cared about their people. And that was sort of the biggest emotion that they were evoking. And we had to prove to them that we could create something better, bigger and stronger. And there would be more opportunities for people than less. How
2: has the financial outlook of the company changed or perhaps improved since this consolidation took place?
0: I mean... A business transformation story is only as good as the performance is. Our revenue growth accelerated. Our um, client development, our client engagement, how happy they were with us, which we measure on an annual basis, grew. And then we took out a lot of inefficiencies that comes with having a fragmented organization and when you consolidate to a you know single integrated business model, you can sort of repurpose those inefficiencies and invest them in your capability set, and that's what we did. So we ultimately grew faster, we um, made our clients happier, and we improved our profitability. Where we could invest in you know new verticals and new marketplace opportunities, it was a virtuous cycle that kept helping the company grow. And most importantly, and we measure everything. We measure everything on behalf of our clients, you know, the performance that we're delivering for them. We measure client engagement scores. Are they happy with us or not? And we measure our internal engagement scores. And remarkably, and it's one of the best I've ever been part of, You know, the change was dramatic and it was quite a transformation, you know, remarkably over the three-year period, if you will, of that evolutionary change, all of our internal performance engagement scores grew. And a couple that grew the fastest were the trust in senior management and the quality of our communication. And we don't think that's coincidental. The more we communicated, the more we enrolled people, they better they felt about the future and and their role within it.
2: And what were some of the major lessons that that you've learned from that consolidation period?
0: Throughout the course of my career, I've personally been involved in either leading or being part of a number of different transformational changes. And, you know, fundamentally, I believe, you know, as John F. Kennedy said, sort of law changes the law of life. So I've personally embraced the value of change and the opportunity to sort of improve but I think the two ones that I've probably been reinforced throughout this particular change is one don't hesitate to make the change it's classic there's been some times where we or myself have over deliberated around a particular change and talked ourselves into why we should be slower or why we should be more considerate. And then, you know, six months to 12 months down the line, we make the change that we had been contemplating for a bit. And the improvement that we saw was almost overnight. And it just says that once you've declared, you know, go with courage and conviction. Don't over-deliberate. There's always going to be resistance to change. But if you have done your homework and you know that change is right, just make it and move on to your new destination and again there was a couple of instances in this three-year journey where i simply wish i would have gone faster with some of the change whether that's people or whether that's structure move with courage and conviction don't over deliberate change is always going to be hard but if you know it's the right change then go quickly
2: how did you go about setting keeping that company culture set in place while this transformation was going on
0: It's a few different ways, right? One is declaring what kind of culture that you want to have. And again, back to sort of the three C's which we're so passionate around, right? You know, we declare the type of leadership team that we were going to be and what they could expect out of us. It started from there. Two, measuring things that are elements of your culture. So back to sort of, we don't subscribe to the sort of cobbler shoe theory, right? We have brilliant researchers and insight people who actually architect and run our engagement surveys that we use so that we're really clear around what people are thinking, how they're feeling against the critical elements that drive our culture. We do rigorous action planning. When we listen to our team, what's working, what's not, we then develop rigorous action plans behind that to make sure that we're improving in the areas that we're falling short. And I think that's been a sort of secret success formula for us being able to drive engagement in a positive direction in the midst of all of this transformational change.
2: And what lessons did you learn about leadership hmm. from this
0: experience? First and foremost, you know, part of your job is to develop a direction for the business that you're running and the team that you're leading. So it starts with that, and as far as I'm concerned, that is sort of job one. Job two is to create and perpetuate the culture. You want to create a great culture that people want to be part of. Uh, In ours, right? some of the key metrics and, and or feedback that we get from our people, Is the quality and the character of their teammates, which is one of the reasons that they love coming to work, right? So having the right type of people and creating the right culture. If you've set the direction and then secondarily you've created the right people, you've put them in the right position to succeed, then the third sort of responsibility of leadership, which is the performance of the organization. I don't think the pillars of what a leader should do changes. You know, I spent the vast majority of my career, right, on the client side and led commercial teams, so marketing organizations, you know, brand building, insights, innovation teams. I mean, those were really my core areas of focus on the client side, and when you go to agency side, it's a very different world. But the fundamental requirements of leadership, those big three that I just referenced, are essentially the same. So I think sort of the core responsibilities of a leader are transcendent, sort of agnostic around the business model.
2: So what attracted you to go from the client side to the agency side?
0: I thought I could add value. An agency is only as good as your clients, And coming from the client side, I thought I could sort of bring the client voice in some of the greatest agency leaders that there are, marketing agencies, tend to have sort of a good mix of both client and agency side. Two, I was here for about 30 days and I sort of fell in love with the character of the people. And then thirdly, I knew the business needed some direction. And that was going to require some pretty significant change. I've got a lot of fulfillment uh, over the course of my career in doing that more than a couple of times. And I thought this could be really a a personally and professionally sort of rewarding experience.
2: Mm. What do you think good leadership looks like?
0: You've got to be competent, right? You've got to be a good human. You have good character. And thirdly, you've got to cultivate a culture that brings positive energy. I mean, I think for me, those are probably the big three.
2: How has your sort of previous leadership experience impacted your current leadership style? And also, how did it affect your experience with consolidation? I know that you previously were the CEO of TDBBS, which is a dog treat company, and you were the America's president at Beam Suntory. So how have those experiences impacted your current leadership style?
0: I operate with courage and conviction, which is why I place so much value on sort of a strategic plan, right? Which is if you know what your destination is, and if you're clear around your ambition, it's inevitably a journey. Back to the comments earlier around external marketplace is always tough and different and dynamic. And then if you instigate, you know, significant change, which in many cases is sort of required, you've got to stay true to your North star and have the courage and conviction that it's the right choices. And if you do the work the right way, it will be the right choice. Courage and conviction are a couple of elements of my leadership style. I'm always very candid with my teams. Uh, I don't believe in sort of indirect communication. I think you can waste a lot of energy so I tend to be pretty direct and pretty candid and open, right? I'm notoriously guilty of oversharing, which I, I don't know if that is necessarily the leadership trait of others. I think there is a direct correlation around the energy that a leader brings to an organization and ultimately the energy that's embedded with your culture.
2: What are some of the cultural differences between working in the U.S. and then working in the U.K., particularly from a a leadership standpoint?
0: There are so many differences, right? One of my elements of my leadership style around candor and directness, that is valued and expected in America. Here, a little less valued. You know, people want the truth, but sometimes they don't want it directly. Work-life balance is very different in America than it is in the U.K., We do a better job over here in the UK of sort of striking that balance. We tend to sort of work in surges. I mean, you race up to the next bank holiday or the next half term or whatever it is, and then you take a proper break. There's not many of those breaks built in uh, in America.
1: Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.